All right, so now we're going to try to, um, to go through um, a fair amount of Richard II since we're not that deeply into the play. But you've all read it. You've demonstrated that um, vividly and wonderfully in, in how well you did on the quiz. Um, you all passed. That's great. Um, let's start with um, Act 5, Scene 5. This is the scene right after the... Um, Exton scene. And um, this is page 1039 if you have the Norton, um, but at any rate, Act 5, Scene 5. And what we have is a very striking moment in the play, and indeed a very striking moment in any play where Shakespeare does something like this, which is when the king comes in alone. So the stage direction is enter Richard alone. Um, and you'll notice that that's not a bracketed stage direction. Um, he took the quiz, he passed, he left. Um, that's not a bracketed stage direction. That's um, Shakespeare insisting on Richard's being alone. Um, lest some editors say, enter Richard and attendants or and servants. No, enter Richard alone. And where he is is in prison. Um, in Pomfret, and um, where he's going to die. And he soliloquizes, um, a great soliloquy, which we'll do the first part of now and then return to later. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. Um, think of that as Shakespeare's, an early version of what will come back in Hamlet um, when Hamlet says that he lives in a prison and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are saying, what do you mean? Hamlet says, all of Denmark is a prison and um, either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern, you'll have to know for the quiz, but either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern says, then is the world one? Um, and Hamlet agrees, the entire world is a prison. So the, so when you get to a place in your life where the world itself feels like a prison, um, that shows a certain um, um, depth of feeling, um, a certain depth of hopelessness. So I've been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous, and here is not a creature but myself. I cannot do it. So his room in the prison, he thinks he's trying to compare it to the world. He says, but I can't. The world is full of a number of things. The world is populous. And here I am alone. Yet, I'll hammer it out. I'll be able to follow through on this meditation, how this this prison where I live is like the world. I'll hammer it out my brain. I'll prove the female to my soul. My soul, the father, and these two, my brain and my soul, will beget a generation of still breeding thoughts. And these same thoughts people this little world in humors like the people of the world. So here I am alone in my room and my brain as, as um, mother and my soul as father will produce thoughts which will populate this world. That, in a, in a fairly obvious way, um, and a fairly non-trivial way, is also a description of Shakespeare writing this play, sitting at his desk with his quill, um, producing a world for you on a page, a world that will then appear on the stage, but will be in humors like the people of the world. So what we talked about on Tuesday, and what Shakespeare is making very explicit here, is the way that the loss of power starts intensifying the language of poetry, and where you get Richard become almost indistinguishable in his situation and in his activity 
from Shakespeare writing about Richard is when he has completely lost power and now in his prison he is populating a world through his thoughts. It's also important to see something that's important throughout the play that Richard and the queen, her name is Isabel but she's never mentioned by name in the play, simply called the queen, Richard and the queen don't have live children. What they produce and reproduce are thoughts and grief. Um, the queen, as we'll see in a little while, I hope, um, talks about giving birth to woe. She is a gasping, new delivered mother, but what she is delivered of is not a child, but woe. Um, here, Richard is himself populating his world sexually through his soul and his brain, um, but only figuratively sexually. What they produce are a generation of still breeding thoughts. Still breeding there means the thoughts breed other thoughts. He starts thinking and his thoughts produce still other thoughts and those thoughts crowd in upon him. And all those thoughts in humor are in their humors like the people of this world, that is the real world, for no thought is contented. That is, what it's like to be a person in the world is to be discontented. No thought is contented. That's why they're like people. How is that so? The better sort, that is the better sort of thoughts, like the better sort of people, as thoughts of things divine are intermixed with scruples and do set the faith itself against the faith. Um, do some of you have a different version of Richard II? Yeah. Um, and do, do you have different words there? Yeah, so there are two versions of Richard II. Um, Richard actually, and interestingly, um, after being published in, in um, or after being performed, um, the idea of a deposition of a king on stage was regarded as beyond the pale for publication. And so it was revised to take um, Richard's resignation off the stage. That's why that stuff's in italics in the Norton. Um, and um, there are certain other tinkerings. I think the word itself against the word is right, um, is the preferred reading, not the faith itself against the faith. Um, it's also something that's echoed in the Almeryl, um, Duchess of York, Duke of York, um, Bolingbroke, plea for forgiveness scene. Um, that is um, the, the joke about um, um, say pardon, says the Duchess of York, begs Henry to pardon all Merle, and then the Duke of York in, in just a ridiculously um, ludicrous moment says, um, in a kind of John Belushi moment, says, yeah, say it in French, say, pardonnez-moi, that is, pardon me, I'm not going to forgive you. Um, and then she calls that setting the word against the word. Um, here, what it means is finding passages in the Bible that seem to contradict each other, and that if you try to save yourself by having faith in God and faith in what the Bible says, the contradictions make you anxious. So here they are. Um, the better sort is thoughts of things divine are intermixed with scruples and to set the word itself against the word as thus, come little ones, which is what Jesus said, um, suffer the children to come unto me, come little ones. What could be simpler and more beautiful than that phrase? And then again, contradicting that, it is as hard to come as for a camel to thread the postern of a small needle's eye. So those thoughts contradict each other and make him anxious. Or those are anxious thoughts, discontented thoughts. Other kinds of thoughts, thoughts tending to ambition. They do plot unlikely wonders how these vain, weak nails may tear a passage through the flinty ribs of this hard world, my ragged prison walls. So notice now he does compare 
the prison to the world. Now the prison is this hard world, my ragged prison walls. And for they cannot die in their own pride. So those thoughts are proud and helpless and therefore die. Again, a kind of self-portrait there. Proud and helpless and therefore dying. Thoughts tending to contempt flatter themselves that they are not the first of fortune slaves, nor shall not be the last. Like seely beggars who sitting in the stocks refuge their shame that many have and others must set there. And in this thought, they find a kind of ease. Um, that's going to be repeated in King Lear. One reason that we're starting with Richard is that it's almost as though Shakespeare, as we'll see in a little while, it's almost as though Shakespeare is putting down markers for what he's going to be interested in in play after play after play. Cordelia is going to say almost exactly this to Lear when they are um, captive. And she says, well, just think about this, that we are not the first who with best meaning did perpend the worst. That is, here we are in prison, but this happens to many people, many good people. Bad things like this happen to many good people. And we should try to content ourselves with that philosophical understanding. Um, Richard is already anticipating that sort of thinking, um, that many must and others must sit there. And in this thought, they find a kind of ease. Notice that now the thoughts are having thoughts. The thoughts have a thought. And in that thought, they find a kind of ease. Um, He's going to repeat that word ease again in a few lines. Bearing their own misfortunes on the back of such as have before endured the like. Misery loves company. You can bear your own misfortunes by thinking of the misery of others, almost oppressing them by thinking of their misery, but making it bearable to yourself. Thus play I in one person many people. So now he's an actor. Here he is alone in his room, generating these thoughts, which are his thoughts, um, trying to play out almost as a method actor, trying to be the person who has those thoughts. Thus play I in one person many people and none contented. That is, like the people of the world, no thought is contented. Now I, thinking none of these thoughts, am contented. Sometimes am I a king? Then treason makes me wish myself a beggar. And so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then am I kinged again? That is, then I think, but I am the king. Then am I kinged again? And by and by think that I am unkinged by Bolingbroke and straight am nothing. So all these different roles that he plays, they all funnel to the same place where he is nothing, neither king nor even beggar. But whatever I be, whatever I am, whatever I be, nor I, nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased. That is, you'll always be discontent as a human being. Nothing pleases a human. Whatever I be, king or beggar, nor I nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. So you're pleased with nothing until you are nothing. That's what he's saying here. Um, there's a joke about, um, a joke actually that Beckett uh, made before, before um, the fact, but a joke about um, the play Waiting for Godot. 
um, which is that it's a play in which nothing happens twice. Um, because, yeah, nothing is happening. And that's what, but that joke really comes out of Shakespeare. It comes out of Richard II. Um, you're pleased with nothing until you're pleased with nothing. That's what Richard is saying. Nothing pleases you until nothing eases you. Um, nothing becomes the only reality. Not only the prison cell, but you get further restricted still. So that the prison cell, which first seemed like a world, now seems like a body. Remember how these vain weak nails may tear a passage through the flinty ribs of this hard world, my ragged prison walls. Um, there he sounds at first as though he's fantasizing about digging his way out through the walls, like the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, but now you realize he's actually fantasizing about suicide. Could I somehow kill myself with only my nails? Um, as though the hard world is his own body, and he can't even do that. This, again, is something you'll see in King Lear, that wretchedness is deprived of even that benefit to end itself by death. A character tries and fails to commit suicide, and that's another mode of oppression. He can't even do that. Well, neither can Richard here. Okay, let's go back. I said before that um, the queen has similar language. One of the striking and surprising things about this play um, is the fact that Richard and the queen actually love each other. Their final leave-taking is very, very beautiful when she says to him, and must we be divided? Must we part? And he says, yes, indeed, hand from hand, my dear, and heart from heart. Hang on to that um, when we look at something that Bolingbroke is about to say in um, the scene that we'll look at after this. But go to Act 2, Scene 2. This is in the Norton, page 1004. Um, and um, what's happened is Richard has seized on all of Gaunt's goods in order to outfit his army to go to Ireland. Um, this is another bit of um, corruption on Richard's part. Um, he fights this war in order to have a reason to um, seize on Gaunt's goods that, that Bolingbroke should inherit for the Troubled King Relief Fund um, that, that um, he's, he's set up for himself. Um, and so he goes off to Ireland in order to enrich himself through um, the, the um, seizing of the wealth that he seizes on with going to Ireland as an excuse. Um, and now the queen is left alone, and we have entered the queen, Bushy, Baggett. Um, and Bushy is trying to comfort her. Madam, your majesty is too much sad. You promised when you parted with the king to lay aside life-harming heaviness and entertain a cheerful disposition. So we didn't see their leave-taking, but we did see that she was sad and he tried to cheer her up. We do see, excuse me, that she was sad and he tried to cheer her up. And she said, okay, she would try. And the queen replies, to please the king I did. That is, I said I would be cheerful while he was gone. To please the king, I did. To please myself, I cannot do it. Notice that Richard speaks like her. He echoes that I cannot do it in the scene we already looked at. I've been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here and is no one but myself, I cannot do it. You will think that this is me hearing an echo where it's just a tossed off phrase, but you'll hear these echoes more and more in Shakespeare. They're parts of subliminal connections that he makes between moments and between characters. Um, this scene is the queen's version of the scene that we're going to, that we've just seen with Richard in Act Five, scene five. Yet I know no cause, she says, why I should welcome such a guest as grief 
save bidding farewell to so sweet a guest as my sweet Richard. So grief is a guest with her now. And notice the haunting echo of the word guest when applied to Richard also, as though the person you're married to is also only a guest in your life because life is short and nothing is permanent. And so the guest that is grief and the guest that is Richard, they're equally guests. And she welcomes that guest grief because the guest grief somehow is a reminder of Richard. Yet again, methinks some unborn sorrow ripe in fortune's womb is coming towards me and my inward soul at nothing trembles. So notice that's the nothing that causes her soul to tremble. It's not the, oh, I tremble at nothing. It's, I tremble at nothing. It's nothing as having substance, not nothing as simply being a logical negation. Um, nothing bothers me. Um, you know the old logical joke about this, right? Which is, um, nothing is better than sex. Ice cream is better than nothing. Therefore, ice cream is better than sex if you order it. So there's a logical error in that ordering. Um, and the logical error is that you're treating nothing in two different ways. That's the joke or that's the deep pun that Richard is making as well. Um, and she confirms it in her next line. With something it grieves as I tremble at nothing. With something it grieves, her inward soul does, more than with parting from my lord the king. And Bushy tries to explain it away psychologically. Every sub, each substance of grief hath 20 shadows. Hang on to the word shadow there. Each substance of a grief hath 20 shadows, which shows like grief itself, but is not so. For sorrow's eye, glazed with blinding tears, divides one thing entire to many objects like perspectives, which rightly gazed upon show nothing but confusion. That's the other use of nothing. All they show is confusion, not nothing but confusion, but nothing but confusion. I to rye distinguish form. So your sweet majesty, looking awry upon your lord's departure, find shapes of grief more than himself to wail, which looked on <coughs> as it is, is naught but shadows of what is not, of what it is not. Thence thrice gracious queen, more than your lord's departure, weep not, more is not seen, or if it be, tis with false sorrows, I, which for things true, weep things imaginary. So you're crying, you see lots of reasons to cry, but if you saw things clearly and, and not through the veil of grief, you wouldn't think that these shadows had any reality to them. Um, so the word shadow is a word that we're gonna see a lot in Shakespeare. We're gonna see it a lot in this play. Um, just so you know, shadow means in addition to what we mean by shadow, that we, what we tend to mean by shadow, which is um, what you can see on the page in front of you if you hold your hand between it and the light. Um, shadow also means spirit. Um, Puck, as you'll see in Midsummer Night's Dream, um, calls himself a shadow in the um, epilogue to the play. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended. Um, shadow is a figment of the imagination. Um, shadow also means actor. Um, and Puck is making that pun when he says, if we shadows have offended. Um, actors are shadows of real beings. So Shakespeare is very interested in shadows. Um, here is one instance. Um, you are seeing shadows of what is not, and you're taking them as real. And the queen replies, it may be so, but yet my inward soul persuades me it is otherwise. Howe'er it be, I cannot but be sad, so heavy sad as thought on thinking on no thought I think makes me with heavy nothing faint and shrink. Um, and so she says, I'm thinking about something that I can't even think about. I'm thinking about something that isn't a thought that I think. 
thinking on no thought that I think makes me with heavy nothing faint and shrink. Bushy tries again with the negative version of nothing. Tis nothing but conceit, my gracious lady. That is, um, it's, only, it's only a figment of your imagination. Conceit there doesn't mean, oh, I'm so cool because I'm sad. Um, what conceit means is a false conception. Um, a poetic conceit is a poetic conception. In this case, it's a false conception. She replies, tis nothing less. That is the last thing it is, is mere false conception, false conceit. Tis nothing less. Conceit, anxiety, false conception as anxiety, is still derived from some forefather grief. Mine is not so, for nothing hath begot my something grief. Her grief has been begotten again by heavy nothing. Or something hath the nothing that I grieve. Tis in reversion that I do possess, but what it is that is not yet known, what I cannot name. Tis nameless woe I want. So it's nameless, but it's there. This is the opposite of being effective in the world. What the queen is doing and what she's setting up in Act 5, Scene 5, is what Richard will be doing, is going into the mind and into the mind's anxieties and into the depths and obscurities and darknesses of the mind. It's not something in the world. It's what is in the mind that has nothing to do with the world. Henry, in this play, is the most effective of characters. Those who are haunted and obsessed with nothingness are at the opposite end of the extreme from Henry's this world efficiency and effectiveness. But notice that even there, she uses a word that Richard has applied to Henry. She says, tis in reversion that I do possess. That is, um, the thing that I'm so worried about now, the anxiety that I feel about nothing, is an anxiety about what I will possess when it becomes mine. I am the heir to this thing. What what Richard has complained about Henry and the way he took leave in his conversation with Merle um, after Henry's departure is that he gives thanks to all his countrymen as he's bowing to them and talking about how much he likes them. Richard said, as though our England were in reversion his and he our subjects next degree in hope. That is, the, that is as though Henry were the person to whom the kingdom were going to revert after Richard's death or deposition or abdication. And that, in fact, is what happens. So that legal term, reversion, is a term that, when it comes to Henry, means the entire kingdom. When it comes to Richard and the queen, it means nothingness. What they inherit is nothing. What Henry inherits is England. But the question is, which is more major, nothing or England? Um, that's a question that is a tragedy is going to be answered in Richard II as finally nothing. Not England, but nothing. What Hal says when Henry dies, Bolingbroke is very, very powerful at the end of Richard II. At the end of Henry IV, part two, what his son says, to, says about his death is, my father has gone wild into his grave. And what, in fact, you'll see if and when, I'll just say when, um, you read the Henry IV plays, is that the older Bolingbroke gets, the more like Richard he gets. Um, Richard's view, the prophecy that he already makes at the end of Richard II, um, is a prophecy about what happens to those who think that they can control the world and fate and life, who think that they are the lords and owners 
of reality is eventually they experience exactly what Richard experiences, what every person experiences, which is why the tragedy of Richard II is a tragedy of interest to every person. It's the story of everyone's life, not the story of a king, but the story of being human and facing loss and grief and eventually death. So we have this conversation, and then we get the news that the banished Bolingbroke, this is at line 49, repeals himself with uplifted arms, is safe arrived at Ravensburg, and the queen knows how awful this is, and then she says at line 62, so green, thou art the midwife to my woe. So this is what she gives birth to. Not an heir, but woe. So green, thou art the midwife to my woe. And Bolingbroke, my sorrow's dismal heir. That is, my sorrow gives birth to Bolingbroke, who eventually will be full of sorrow himself. That's implied here, although it's not going to happen in the course of this play. But hang on to the idea of Bolingbroke as heir. That is, the idea that somehow he is their actual heirs, not the person to whom the kingdom will revert, but the person whom they almost adopt, the person who, because their only children are woe and sorrow, becomes their heir instead so that Bolingbroke will stand for them for the woe and sorrow of their own futures. Now hath my soul brought forth her prodigy, and I, a gasping, new-delivered mother, have woe to woe, sorrow to sorrow joined. Um, so that's her heirs. That's her sorrow. Now, one reason to look at this scene is to um, compare it to, if you now go to um, page 1011, which is Act 3, Scene 1, um, we can see Bolingbroke's typical procedure. We've already talked a little bit about this. But the context of this scene makes what happens in Act 3, Scene 1 um, very intense. So enter Bolingbroke who's won a bunch of battles and has um, a very great deal of power. Now, <coughs> enter Bolingbroke, Northumberland, Ross, Percy, and Willoughby. Um, Northumberland and, uh, is Percy's father. Um, they are going to be the rebels in um, Henry IV, Part I. Um, Percy is one of the two major figures in that play um, and one of the most likable antagonists in all of Shakespeare. Um, so he's being introduced here. He's not a major character at all in Richard II, but again, I draw your attention to him. And Bolingbroke now says, bring forth these men, and who are they? They're bushy and green prisoners. Um, and he says to them, bushy and green, I will not vex your souls, since presently your souls must part your bodies, with too much urging your pernicious lives for tour no charity. So what he's basically saying is, I'm about to execute you. There's no point in talking about how bad you are. Um, it's part of his efficiency. Um, really nice of him um, not to explain to them why they're being executed. Um, don't want to be a pain. Um, but he goes on, yet to wash your blood from off my hands, here in the view of men I will unfold some causes of your deaths. Now, notice that he loves washing blood off his hands. Um, that's what he says in the last speech of the play as well. And yet to wash his blood from off my hand, I'll make a journey to the Holy Land. That's the part that I didn't quote for you when I asked the question on the quiz. Um, yeah. Is that a pilot reference? Yes. Um, and in fact, it, the question is, is this a pilot reference? Um, the answer is, um, yeah. And Richard, in fact, is going to, going to what? Richard is going to be Christ. The nails that we talked about there are partly um, references to um, the nails of the crucifixion. 
Um, but Richard, is, Richard calls those who are taking him down pilots, though some of you like, are like pilots, he says. Um, so there's certainly a thematic through line in this play where Richard and some of the imagery treats himself as like Jesus being um, taken down by Pontius Pilate and the Romans. Um, I think, in fact, that there's competing imagery in the play, and the competing imagery um, wins out. And the competing imagery is one where Richard is compared to Saul, um, and Bolingbroke is compared to David. That is, um, David in, um, is that what you wanted to say, Julian? Yeah, he couldn't build the temple because he had blood on his hands, but he also keeps saying, people say, David, we want you as king. Um, and David keeps saying, I may never go against an anointed king. So Saul is the, is the Lord's anointed. And David says, I will not enter into battle against him. He's got to do it himself. Um, and so David puts enormous pressure on Saul, but officially he never harms him. And that's what Bolingbroke will do to Richard. But of course, David is the great king of Israel, and Saul is not. So the idea of, um, so the two competing sets of biblical parallel. You know, lots of people, a, a, a standard way to read literature is to, at least it was standard in the 50s, but it was probably standard since since Dante or earlier all the way to the 1950s, is to say, so what biblical story is being retold here? And what moral lesson and religious lesson should we learn from it? Shakespeare is really good at setting the word itself against the word and having at least two biblical stories that contradict each other if you try to um, draw the parallel between his play and the biblical story that his play is alluding to, you can't just say, oh, we know that it must be the case that Bolingbroke is the good guy because he's just like David in the Bible, whereas Richard is just like Saul. Therefore, yay, Bolingbroke. Because it's also the case that no, Richard is like Jesus and Bolingbroke is like Pilate. And those con contrasting models for the story that's being told cancel each other out. They give depth to the story. That is, every time you see a David reference, or as we will see in King Lear, where it's really, really intense, and Isaac and Jacob re references, every time you see those, they give depth to what's going on in Shakespeare, but they don't prove anything. Shakespeare does not want you to think that he's telling a story that you can understand by going back to the Bible and seeing how Shakespeare retells that story. Um, he's telling his own story, and the only way to interpret what, it, what is really going on is to look at this story. The only way to understand this story and to react to it rightly is to look at it. And um, at most, what he's doing is he's saying, if you want to understand what's happening in the Bible, Richard II will tell you. Not, if you want to understand what's happening in Richard II, go read your Bible. It's the Bible is actually a lot deeper. These characters are a lot deeper than you may have thought. Want to see how? Richard II, or King Lear, or Hamlet. They'll let you know how. So the Bible is not the um, explanation for Shakespeare. At best, Shakespeare's the explanation for the Bible. Um, I'll also, there's an interesting fact that some of you may know, or an interesting factoid, um, which is that Shakespeare is the one English writer whose name is actually in the King James Version of the Bible. Um, do people know about this? So it's interesting, and, and you'll check it on Wikipedia, and you'll see, it's, you'll see there's some, um, there's some um, controversy about this, but it's true. Um, Shakespeare was friends with Lancelot Andrews, who was the main translator of the King James Version. And um, on Shakespeare's 44th birthday, I think it was in 1608, Lancelot Andrews um, seems to have sent him a copy of his translation of Psalm 44, 
Um, and it was Shakespeare's 44th birthday, and there's Psalm 44. And the 44th word in Lancelot Andrews's translation of Psalm 44 is shake, and the 44th word from the end of, of Andrews's translation of Psalm 44 is spear. Um, so that's a great thing. There are a lot of great things about the King James Bible. That's one of them. Um, maybe not the greatest, but still. Um, okay, or you could, you could say it's great, or you could say it's insane, or you could just say it's insanely great. Um, unlike, alas, the iPad, apparently. Um, okay, so um, Bolingbroke is now washing his hands off for, from the blood of, um, of um, Bushy and Green. And he says, why? I will unfold some causes of your deaths. You have misled a prince, a royal king, a happy gentleman in blood and lineaments by you unhappy and disfigured clean. So he's accusing them now of having um, made Richard what he is, made him unhappy, but also disfigured. Um, the word unhappied, which is generally not a verb, if you type this in a word processor, <laughs> it'll be underlined with red, um, as much of Shakespeare will. Um, but what it means here is both made unhappy, but also um, turned into a source of unhappiness. He was a good and happy person, but now he's turned into what causes unhappiness everywhere. In fact, you've disfigured him, which makes him both a victim of what you've done, but also not a good king. So he's accusing them the way he accused Mowbray in Act 1, Scene 1. If you didn't get before that he was after the kingship from the start by accusing Mowbray of all these crimes, now he's doing it to Bushy and Green. What he persistently does is he executes or goes against Richard's allies by claiming that they're not his allies but his enemies. Not only that, you have in manner with your sinful hours made a divorce betwixt his queen and him, broke the possession of a royal bed and stained the beauty of a fair queen's cheeks with tears drawn from her eyes by your foul wrongs. Um, so what he's essentially alluding to here um, are rumors that Bushy and Green and Baggett also, um, the aptly named Baggett, were um, Richard's lovers and that he had no interest in the queen. And he's saying, so one reason that I have to execute him is that you seduced him um, and um, prevented him and the queen from having a happy married life. Now notice that what Bolingbroke is doing throughout is accusing others of what he himself is doing. We have seen her weep. We know why she weeps. She tells Baggett why she weeps. She tells Green why she weeps. She doesn't say, it's your fault. She says, it's Bolingbroke's fault. Bolingbroke is here. Now, Green, you are the midwife of my woe because Bolingbroke has arrived. Now, an act later, we have Bolingbroke saying, you caused her to weep, but we already know that's not true. In this context, we can see how Bolingbroke knew that he was going to get banished in Act One, and that this was his plan too. Myself, a prince by fortune of my birth, near to the king in blood and near in love, right, <coughs> till you did make him misinterpret me, have stooped my neck under your injuries and sighed my English breath in foreign clouds, eating the bitter bread of banishment. So he says, it's your fault that I was banished. Really didn't want to be, just as I really didn't want the queen to be upset and really didn't want the king um, to um, no longer be with the queen and no longer be an effective queen. And what this tells you is, yeah, the banishment was part of my plan. That was part of the way I plotted things, that I would be banished and people would think this was outrageous and they would come to my side and then I would win. Um, so this, again, is an explanation through denial of, of Bolingbroke's manipulation, 
everything he says he's not doing, he's doing. Everything, Bolingbroke's mode is to, is to A, get, and B, blame other people to do his work for him. Throughout the play, and the scene with Exton is the most obvious example when he says, have I no friend will rid me of this living fear and wishedly looked on me as though to say, I would thou wert the man. His way throughout is to get other people to do his wishes. Now, I'm pressing that because the major and most important version of getting someone else to do his wishes is getting Richard to resign. Getting Richard to resign is the major league version of all the other puppeteering that Bolingbroke does, or all the other um, manipulating and um, and um, uh, simply through the charismatic magnetism of his personality um, causing others to do the thing that he can't do himself. He cannot depose Richard. Richard must abdicate. And what this play is about is how good Bolingbroke is at doing that. That's the hardest thing in the world to stage in this play. Um, how Bolingbroke does that in reality, it's not really that hard to do. In reality, all you do is make Richard an offer he can't refuse. But that doesn't have psychological depth. That's just violence. Plays about violence are kind of interesting once, but that's it. Um, getting psychological depth means that Shakespeare's version of this play is going to be about psychological pressure backed up to some extent with the threat of force. But it's not ultimately the threat of force that causes Richard to resign. It's Bolingbroke's understanding of how to get Richard to do the thing that he wants him to do. And that is the task that Shakespeare has set himself in this play, how to get Richard to do that. So let's go forward a little bit now to, act th to the next um, scene, Act 3, Scene 2. And um, what happens is Richard has now returned from Ireland. He's very glad, he says, to be back in England. Um, and he knows what Bolingbroke is doing. But Richard isn't worried about it. If you go to Act 3, Scene 2, Line 32, this is page 1013 of the Norton. Um, O'Merle is worrying about Bolingbroke's force, and um, Richard isn't. And what he says to O'Merle is, discomfortable cousin, knowest thou not that when the searching eye of heaven is hid behind the globe that lights the lower world, then thieves and robbers range abroad unseen in murders and in outrage bloody here. But when from under this terrestrial ball <coughs> he fires the proud tops of the eastern pines and darts his life through every guilty hole, then murders, treasons, and detested sins, the cloak of night being plucked from off their backs stand bare and naked, trembling at themselves. Don't you know that, he says? So his idea is, when I was in Ireland, it was as though it were nighttime, and I was on the other side of the world, but now I'm back, and that's like sunrise. Now remember that Bolingbroke, or as he then is Henry IV in Henry IV Part One, talks about a king as having sun-like majesty, but here Richard is imagining that he's the sun himself, S-U-N, sun himself. He's not like the sun, he is the sun. And so that when he rises, Bolingbroke will flee. Um, so when this thief, this traitor, Bolingbroke, who all this while hath reveled in the night whilst we were wandering with the Antipodes, shall see us rising in our throne the east, his treasons will sit blushing in his face, not able to endure the sight of day, but self-affrighted, tremble at his sin. And then the um, king 
Saul reference, not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the bomb from an anointed king. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord. So God is on my side. I am the anointed king. Um, Here he sounds like Gaunt. Remember, Gaunt says, I cannot raise a hand against God's minister, his deputy anointed in his sight. Richard is using exactly the same language that Gaunt has used to the Duchess of Gloucester. Um, I have angels on my side. All he has are men. Um, But boy, is he ever wrong. Um, Salisbury comes in and says, no one, I have no one to help you with. Um, You came one day too late. I fear me, noble lord. Actually, I should should read his whole speech. Um, um, Where's your, how how far off lies your power? Salisbury answers, nor nearer nor farther off, my gracious lord, than this weak arm. This is all I have left. Discomfort guides my tongue. Notice that he called O'Merle discomfortable cousin. Now discomfort guides my tongue. Hang on to that word comfort because Richard in what might be his best speech in the play will say, of comfort no man speak. A little bit later in this scene. Discomfort guides my tongue and bids me speak of nothing but despair. Which can mean bids me speak only of despair or Despair might be a verb there. Bids me speak of nothing, and instead of speaking, I'll despair. So it bids me speak of nothing, but bids me despair instead. I will speak of nothingness and despair. One day too late, I fear me, noble Lord, hath clouded all thy happy days on earth. So he may be a son, but he's clouded. Oh, call back yesterday, bid time return. But you can't, as Gaunt has already pointed out. You can hasten time, but you cannot make it come back. Um, Amurl then says, comfort my liege. Why looks your grace so pale at line 71? Notice um, that that's a stage direction. If you're playing Richard, um, what you should mark in your um, acting copy of the script is look pale. So that what Omerle says here makes sense. Why looks that like why looks your grace so pale? And he explains, I just lost twenty thousand men, and time had set a blot upon my pride. Omerle tries to comfort him again. Comfort my liege. Remember who you are. And Richard does remember. I am the king. I had forgotten myself. Am I not king? Awake, thou sluggard majesty. Thou sleepst is not the king's name. 40,000 names. Arm, arm, my name. A puny subject strikes at thy great glory. So every time he feels like maybe he can do this thing, we get someone else entering. But who comes here? Um, Well, bad news for you, says Scrope, and Richard is ready for it. Now, mine ear, he knows it. Mine ear is open and my heart prepared. The worst is worldly loss. Thou canst unfold. Say, is my kingdom lost? Why, t'was my care. And what it loss is it to be rid of care? So now he's already starting to sound like the person that he will be in prison in Act 5, scene Five. Then I think I'm a king. But why would you want to be king? Is my kingdom lost? Well, t'was my care. So then Scrope gives him the news, and um, Richard is very unhappy with it. And finally, O'Merle says, well, what about York? At line 139, where is the duke, my father, with his power? And now Richard doesn't want to even hear the answer to this question. No matter where, he says, of comfort, no man speak. So, so much for all that comfort. Discomfortable cousin, the discomfort of the situation. Now he's saying there's no point in imagining comfort, as O'Merle has done twice. Of comfort, no man speak. 
Let's talk about something else instead. Let's talk of graves, of worms, and epitaphs. Make dust our paper and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills. And yet not so. For what can we bequeath save our deposed bodies to the ground? Now notice that the we there in line 145 you might think is a royal we, but it isn't. It's not our deposed body, but our deposed bodies. Notice that we didn't talk much about this, but Richard, as King Lear will later, begins very much with the royal we, which is we are the king. Not we are kings, but we are king. As uh, Queen Victoria famously said, we are not amused. Um, and the royal we is a very much a first person singular, but it's a singular that transcends mere singularity. Um, Richard sometimes says I, sometimes says we as king, but now his we is becoming conclusive and general and about all human beings. And this line, or this, this line and a half makes it clear for what he says is, what can we bequeath save our deposed bodies? That is, he's deposed, but we're all deposed. What do we bequeath? What any human being bequeaths, our bodies to the ground. Our lands, our lives, and all our Bolingbrooks and nothing can we call our own but death. That's all anyone owns is their own deaths. And nothing can we call our own but death. Oh no, we can, a little land also. And that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones. What we own is our own graves. Later, Hamlet will be amazed that Fortinbras goes forward to have a battle um, over a piece of land which won't be large enough to bury the dead of that battle. Um, how much land, as Tolstoy asks, how much land does a man need? Um, well, enough for a grave. Um, Tolstoy hated Shakespeare, but that's because he saw Shakespeare as his only competition. Um, <laughs> so, and that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground helpfully the Norton tells you, sitting. Um, you don't need to know that. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. And now we get a catalog of all of Shakespeare's tragedy to come. How some have been deposed, like him. Some slain in war. Can you think of any Shakespearean kings slain in war? Um, not Henry VI. Richard III. Yep. Um, Macbeth. Yeah, God forbid you should say it aloud, but yes. Um, some slain in war. Some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed. Um, <laughs> uh, Hamlet, or um, Claudius, who else? Who else? Macbeth, anyone else? Richard III. Um, Really haunted in the, in the final battle. Tomorrow in the battle, think on me, say the ghosts he has deposed and killed. Um, some poisoned by their wives. So I think what that actually tells you is that Shakespeare was planning a play about Augustus Caesar, um, who was said to have been poisoned by his wife, Livia. Um, he's a character in Antony and Cleopatra, um, which is a sequel to Julius Caesar. Um, but he never actually wrote that play, as far as we know. Um, but some poisoned by their wives. Hamlet Sr. was certainly poisoned, but not by his wife. Um, some sleeping killed. Good. And old Hamlet. Yep. All murdered. Now that's a strong thing to say. He's saying every king who ever lived was murdered. Um, not only lots of them, but every single one. But he explains what he means by that. To be all kings are murdered. Why? For within the hollow crown, and hollow is a word worth um, underlining in Richard II. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death 
his court. So death is the real king. Within the hollow crown of the rounds, the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state, that is making fun of the king's state, and grinning at his pomp, because death is grinning like a skull. Grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks. Remember Bolingbroke wishedly looked on me, says Exton. So Bolingbroke does kill with looks, by the way he looks at Exton. Death lets a king, or lets someone who thinks he's a king, act the part, play a little scene as king to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable. That's how you know in Act 5, Scene 5, that um, the wall is also the wall of the body, the flesh that walls about our life, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable and humored thus, comes at the last that is King Death, comes at the last and with a little pin bores through his castle wall, that is the body. And farewell, King, cover your heads. Because as you'll remember from the Prince and the Pauper, you can never wear a hat in front of a king. But he says, no, cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence. It's ridiculous that you would do me reverence. I'm flesh and blood. Throw away respect, tradition, form, and ceremonious duty, for you have but mistook me all this while. I'm a human being, and here is Shakespeare giving you a two-line or even a line-and-a-half summary of what it means to be a human being. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste grief, need friends. So if you want to tweet what human life is, <laughs> it's living with bread, feeling want, tasting grief, needing friends. You'll have lots of space left for a link. <laughs> Subjected thus, how can you say to me I am a king? Subjected, that is, subjected to want and grief and the need for friends and the requirement for food. Subjected to all those things, but to be subjected to those things is to be made not a king, but a subject. That is, what a subject is, is someone a king rules. You are subjected if you, um, this isn't actually true anymore in the legal language of England, but until recently, um, if you went to England or if you said to an English person, are you a citizen of England, they would be angry at you because they would say, no, I'm not a citizen of England. I am a subject of Queen Elizabeth. That is, to be a member of England was to be a subject, not a citizen. There's a lot of political theory and a lot of political debate about whether, um, hold, whether being, being part of a country makes you the su a subject or a citizen. Um, now, I think since the European Union, um, the language of citizenship is general in Europe, including in, in England. Um, but it used to be you were a British subject. What Richard is saying is, but what that meant is there is one person in England who is a citizen who holds a British passport but is not a subject. And that's the queen herself or the king himself. Um, but Richard is saying, no, I too am a subject. I'm subjected to all these things. Subjected to life and to death. How can you say to me, I am a king? So he is no one, but he knows something that he didn't know at the start and that Bolingbroke does not know at the end, which is that no matter how powerful you are, your life can be summarized in, I live with bread like you, taste, um, feel want, taste grief, need friends. That's what it means to be a human being. That's what makes it the tragedy of Richard II, not the tragedy of Bolingbroke. 
Um, now, we will, it looks like, have to talk a little bit more about this on Tuesday. But do read the first three acts of Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, the thing to notice, though, this idea that he needs friends and the fact that what Bolingbroke's procedure is is to kill all his friends <laughs> means that in the climactic moment of this scene, Richard only has one, of this play, Richard only has one friend left, and that's Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke will also ask for friends later on in this play, so Shakespeare really underlines that. But the friend Richard needs is finally the friend that Bolingbroke is. Okay, have a good weekend.